You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. John chapter 12, our focus today will be on verses 20 through 36. I'll begin reading with verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. John 12, verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us for sometimes seeing something of the truth of your cross and yet failing to grasp the truth of the cross. So grant us a full multi-faceted view of the glory of Christ crucified. Not just to see His humiliation therein, but His exaltation. Not to see it as a tragedy, but as a triumph. Not to View it as the disciples did in the hour of His crucifixion, but as they did in retrospect, in light of His resurrection. Lift up our hearts to see Christ lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At first glance, you might not only think that You have here a jumbled bunch of puzzle pieces and you wonder if they can ever go together. You might think you've got two entirely different puzzles all together at play in our text. But if you properly place the borders of the resurrection of Lazarus on one side and Caiaphas' unwitting prophecy on the other, Mary's anointing for burial on the bottom... And the triumphal entry on the top, if you've got those borders in place, then you can see how everything harmoniously and gloriously fits together here. The Passover draws near. Remember, Caiaphas has unwittingly prophesied it's better that one perish than that the whole nation be destroyed. The Passover has come. 
But the one who is to perish, the Lamb of God, is he who has just been identified as he who is the resurrection and the life. And thus it is that the grave precedes glory. And thus it is that a king, having been anointed for burial, understandably enters the city, welcomed in triumph and glory as their king and deliverer. And so our text opens speaking of a number of Greeks who have come to worship for the Passover. It's doubtful that these are full proselytes to the Jewish faith. If they were, they wouldn't have been referred to as Greeks, most likely. It's more probable these are what are referred to as God-fearers. God-fearers would be those who appreciated the Jewish faith, even, even adopted it as their own, but they weren't circumcised. They were not full converts. And Cornelius is the prime example, I think, that we have of a God-fearer in the New Testament, Acts 10, 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. But you remember Peter said he would not have entered Cornelius' house had it not been for the vision that he had received. If Cornelius was a full proselyte, that wouldn't have been the case. He would have been considered a Jew. Peter would have no qualms entering his home. And so Cornelius is a God-fearer, and that speaks to something of the nearness and yet the distance that a God-fearer would have. They would only be allowed into the court of Gentiles. They could proceed no further. And so these Greeks have come for the Passover feast, and this would be as far as they are allowed into the temple precincts. And these Greeks have come to Philip, and they've asked to see Jesus, verse 21. And then notice how they disappear as abruptly as they entered onto the scene. That's really the only dealings, interactions that there are with these Greeks. Why does John draw our attention to them? It's not critical, you may think at first glance, to what Jesus goes on to unfold. Why draw our attention to them? Exasperated with the crowds having welcomed Jesus into the city, as they did, the Pharisees have just responded in John's narrative saying, look, the world has gone after him. Now, we know that they intend this as hyperbole. But God intends it as Caiaphas' unwitting prophecy to say truth, just literal truth. And the indication of how God intends you to understand it is clear and that right after this, John draws our attention to these Greeks seeking Jesus. Striking, you have the Jewish leaders seeking to kill Jesus. And then these Greeks seeking to see Jesus. And note the peculiar way that Philip is described. And then our attention is drawn to Philip and Andrew, two apostles who have Greek names. They're not Greek, they're Jews, but they have Greek names. They're highlighted. And then we're told that this is Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. We were already told that in chapter 1, verses 43 and 44. 
There's nothing in our narrative that says, hey, that's a critical factor in understanding why it is that the Greeks came to Philip. Why draw our attention to this? I don't think because it's critical to the way things have unfolded here. Well, he was from Galilee. These guys are from Galilee. They knew each other. There's nothing of that indicated at all. Why does John draw our attention once more to where Philip was from? I don't think it's because of of how it impacts them in their interactions. I believe it's so that it might impact us because of the biblical connotations that are involved whenever you say Galilee. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that Jesus' living in Capernaum was to fulfill what Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 spoke of. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Do you see how he's adding to the ambiance of of everything that's accumulating throughout this passage? You have the world is going after Jesus. Greeks seeking Jesus. Philip and Andrew, Greek apostles with Greek names. And then, to remind you once again, to fill out this, this subtle mood that John is setting, you're told, oh yes, Philip, who was from Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so then Jesus answers them. Verse 23, he answered them. He's answering the disciples and thus he's answering indirectly these Greeks. He doesn't answer with a simple yes or no. His answer is much more profound And in answering these two disciples in the way that he does, it's as though he's not simply giving an answer concerning these Greeks, but all Gentiles. The answer is meant to be overheard, and you see it is overheard by the crowd, by the Jews here, but it's meant to be overheard still by all Gentiles who wish to see Jesus, to know Jesus. Sinner, if you want to know Jesus, overhear this answer this morning. You want to know something of who Jesus is. Here he speaks concerning who he is, tying his identity to the cross. You want to know who Jesus is? Listen to this answer. And it has three parts. First, he tells them that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23. Now, up to this point in John's gospel... The hour has been something anticipated, something future, something not yet. When Mary comes to him, John 2, he tells her, My hour has not yet come. John 7, twice his brothers are told, in response to their question, Are you going up to the feast? Show yourself. And he says, My time has not yet fully come. My time has not yet come, John 7, 6, and 8. Also prior to this point, it's made clear that this hour is the hour of His passion, His suffering, John seven thirty. So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come, John eight twenty again. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, 
the hour has come. And notice that now it's not referenced as the hour of His humiliation, but the hour of His glorification. And so some have tried to say, well, at this point, Jesus is speaking of this hour in reference to His resurrection. But I think the context, the total of what Jesus is saying here, makes that impossible. The cross and resurrection are inseparable. We, we, we shouldn't really think of one without the other. But nonetheless, we don't need to import the resurrection into what Jesus is saying here to make sense of it. And it is clear that Jesus is speaking of the cross centrally as His glorification here. The cross is not only the apex of His humiliation, it is the beginning of His exaltation. Philippians 2 tells us that glorification indeed follows because of humiliation. That's true. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But here, we're told that His glorification began with His humiliation. Indeed, we're told that His glorification is in His humiliation. Dea Carson comments, It is not just that the shame of the cross is inevitably followed by the glory of exaltation, but that the glory is already fully displayed in the shame. How is that so? How is it that the hour of Jesus' supreme humiliation on the cross is the lifting up of the Son in glory? And the fuller answer lies ahead throughout our text, but you immediately begin to get an answer in the second part of Jesus' answer here. And it happens as that question that should still be nagging in your mind is there and you're looking to the second part of what Jesus says. And that question is, what does this have to do with the Greeks seeking Jesus? He's answering them concerning Greeks seeing Him, and He just said that the hour has come of His glorification. So, how is it that being lifted up on the cross is His glorification? And how does any of that have to deal with these Greeks seeking Jesus? Jesus answered, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you see how that speaks to his being glorified when he's lifted up and to the Greeks seeking him? Jesus' faithfulness unto death results in the fruitfulness of life. In John 10, Jesus said that he, multiple times, that he lays down his life for the sheep. And one of those instances when he says that, it's followed by this, John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The shepherd who lays down his life in the laying down of his life is acting such that those sheep can be gathered. Remember Caiaphas in that prophecy said, it's better than one person perish than the whole nation. John goes on to explain, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John eleven fifty one and 52. And so now you begin to understand something of how the hour of his humiliation is also the hour of his glorification. And you begin to understand something of how this relates to the Greeks seeking Jesus. This is why the world will go after him. They don't go after him despite his being crucified. They go after him because he was crucified. You begin to understand that, but the next part of Jesus' answer can puzzle you as he transitions from his suffering to that of his disciples. And he begins by this third part of his answer. He unfolds a principle from his death, then applies it to the disciples. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And the idea here is not that you despise your living, but that your life is not the reason why you live. It's not what you live for. To love your life is to love it above he who is life the one from whom you have your life. It's as simple as violating the first commandment and idolizing self. And we, by our idolatry, always destroy what is idolized. When we take good things and make them God things, we destroy them. You make a God out of your spouse, you will destroy her or him. You make a God out of your children, You will destroy them. They cannot bear that weight. You make a God out of yourself. And this is idolatry at its fundamental level of which every one of us do. We destroy ourselves. Eve was already made in the image of God. And whenever she believed the lie of, if you eat, you'll be like God. She lost what she already had. The image of God being marred, perverted, twisted. But for those who serve Jesus, though they're following He who goes to the cross, He says they will be with Him. He's going to the cross, and yet they'll be with Him. He's the resurrection and the life. And thus they will be honored, as He is honored, exalted of the Father. Now, our cross is not Christ's cross. But we bear our cross as we follow our Lord who bore the cross for us. Paul presses this to a point I think we would be embarrassed to do had not the Holy Spirit instructed us. He writes in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what it means to follow Christ and take up your cross. Everything else is loss. He continues. 
For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The death and resurrection of our Lord is unique, and yet we share in it. And if we share in his sufferings, we'll share in his glory. Romans 8, Paul tells us that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. But why make that connection here at this point? Again, how does this relate to Jesus' glorification and the Greeks seeking Jesus? Well, Philip and Andrew have come to Jesus concerning these Greeks. This speaks to their going to tell the Greeks. The disciples following their Lord is a fruit of His death. Their following is a fruit of His death. And their following will result in more fruit of that seed. Their fruitfulness will result in more fruitfulness, and all of it's the fruitfulness of that seed. You sense something, I think, of what this is all about. Whenever Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-15, saying, But we, and that we... Uh, throughout Corinthians, it's, it's quite dominant, is a ministerial we. He's speaking about himself as an apostle, ministers of Christ. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. They are the fruit of Jesus' dying, and they then themselves become little seeds, and they're dying is for the sake of even more fruitfulness. Like our Lord, our faithfulness, by His grace, results in fruitfulness. This faithfulness involves a dying unto self, but that dying is truly living. And even if we should die for our living unto God, there is glory in that dying. Now, 
Well, Jesus' words there speak of our solidarity with him in his death. His next words speak to the uniqueness of his death. Now is my soul troubled. It's troubled and so he must pray. But what must he pray? He's so troubled that he contemplates, Father, save me from this hour. Some have referred to this as John's Gethsemane. John, I think as you've seen, many times switches an episode that's popular in the Synoptic Gospels to make a particular point, substitutes it with an alternate episode in Jesus' life to highlight it in a, in a different kind of way. And so here we have John's Gethsemane. In Luke 22, we have our Lord praying with great exertion, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see that the hour of Jesus' glorification is also the hour of his deepest woe. On the cross, he will become a curse instead of sinners. He will drink the cup of the wrath of God Almighty down to the bitter dregs for sinners. Sinners face death courageously in ignorance. Jesus knew what awaited Him in His crucifixion and death. The saints can share in Christ's sufferings and go to the stake with boldness because they know They will only have to deal with the wrath of man. They will taste nothing of the wrath of God if they are in Christ. Jesus went to the cross knowing He will face not only the most excruciating torments men can deliver, He will bear the wrath of God Almighty. Wicked men, even if they're aware Of what awaits them on the other side of death. They know they will only suffer for their wickedness. Jesus is going to the cross. Knowing he will drink the cup of the Father's wrath for sinners. Such as to make an atonement so sufficient that whosoever would believe. So of course the son was troubled by this hour. But he was not troubled because he loved his own life. He was troubled by it because he loved his father. And thus it is that he prays, Father, glorify your name. The reason Jesus came was for this purpose. Verse 27. For this purpose I have come to this hour. As John Stott says, There is no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. For this purpose He has come. Forsyth didn't exaggerate when he wrote, Christ is to us just what His cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth, 
was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. That's why I'm saying, if you are a Greek, if you're a sinner, if you're wanting to see Jesus, look to Jesus and what he's communicating here about his being lifted up. And for the third time in the Gospels, we hear the Father speak audibly from heaven. At his transfiguration and his earlier at his baptism, the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here he says, I will glorify it, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. How has the Father glorified it? How will the Father glorify it? And we could answer, In all things. He has glorified it in all things, He will glorify it in all things. That's true. But Jesus is asking this in a very particular sense, and He's answered in a very particular sense. The Father has glorified His name in the Son, and the Father will glorify His name in the Son. In John 5, Jesus spoke of doing the works that He sees the Father doing. All that the Father does, He does. And He tells us that He's doing these works, the Father's given Him these works, So that they might marvel. This kind of marveling. So that they might worship Jesus as they worship the Father. And he tells them that by these works. Again, this is John 5. That by these works, the Father testifies to the Son. And so, revisit these signs, these works. After his first work, John 2.11. We're told that Jesus performed this sign, that when He performed it, He manifested His glory. And then listen to what we're told in John 17. Jesus is praying again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. So as the Son is doing these works, and people are marveling at the Son, These are works given to the Son so that the Son is glorified and in the glorifying of the Son, the Father is glorified. Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. In those signs, He's manifested the Father's name. In all those signs that magnify Christ, the Father's been magnified and He's praying, Father, as I come to the sign of signs, my death and resurrection Glorify it again. The Father has glorified it in this way. The Father will glorify it in this way. This is God's modus operandi all the time. At all times, in all things, in all ways. This is how the Father magnifies His name. In the Son. And at the cross, that didn't cease to be the way God works. At the cross, the Father is still magnifying His name in magnifying His Son on the cross. As he's in his greatest moment of shame, it is the moment of the Father also glorifying him. Never did the Son so exalt the Father than when he walked to the cross in obedience. And there the Father magnifies his Son. But the crowd is confused by this. Some think it's thundered. Others, an angel has spoken to him, verse 29. And we can be puzzled at their puzzlement because Jesus said this came for your sake, not mine. Edward Klink, I think, helpfully says that 
This prayer was conversationally private, but ministerially public. They're meant to overhear it. And their failure to hear the Father's witness speaks to their failure to hear the Father's witness time and time again in these signs. They were the Father's testimony. And once again, they failed to hear the Father's testimony. Not when it's just a sign, but when it's a voice booming from heaven, they failed to hear the Father's testimony. And all this foreshadows, it portends the darkness that Jesus is soon going to speak of in our text. Jesus' next words, I think, function as something of an explanation of how it is that the cross is His glorification, how it is that the Father is going to glorify His Son in the cross. There are three areas of conquest that are highlighted here with Jesus' explanation. First, by the cross, the world is judged. Carson writes, The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus. Not only as it perpetually debated who he was, but climactically in the cross. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. Remembering the confusion that they've expressed, and the darkness that Jesus is going to go on to speak of, listen to John 3, 17-21 afresh. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. By the cross, the world is judged. And I believe that negative connotation is at the fore here. But I don't know that we can completely eliminate a positive aspect that could be involved in this. At the cross, the new humanity represented in Christ, is judged as well. So the cross is either a judgment for you or against you. It speaks either to your guilt or your, or your uh, justification. But second, by the cross, the ruler of this world is cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? It's, it's Satan. But our God is sovereign, is He not? So how is Satan the ruler of this world? Well, from a perspective, we can speak of Him ruling the hearts of men. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan's the ruler of this world, not in any kind of sense of of him being a sovereign and uh, having that kind of authority and power, but it has the sense of the rule of men's hearts in regards to temptation and desire. And so it's that John tells us in 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one in this way. But this has reference not only to temptation, but to accusation. He's called the accuser. And thus, having tempted and accusing us, there's a sense in which he has the power of death as well. But by the cross, he's stripped of all this power, Hebrews 2.14-15. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Or Colossians 2. And you who are dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. On the cross, as Jesus deals with our shame, He puts our foes to shame. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And then third, by the cross, Jesus draws all people to Himself, verse 32. The cross is the planting of that seed in the ground for the harvesting of the world. By this lifting up, it's made clear, it's the hour of His death, verse 33. He draws all men to Himself. Isaiah 53 is one of the most glorious chapters in the Old Testament concerning the passion of the Lord. It's just one of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture. But it is, unfortunately, a victim of a blunder of a chapter division. When you read Isaiah 53, start with Isaiah 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And I think everything that follows concerning the humiliation of our Lord is speaking of how it is that he's going to be high and lifted up and exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. In his humiliation, he gathers the peoples to himself. The hour of his terror is the hour of his triumph. By the cross, our Lord judged the world. He cast out the ruler of this world and He accomplished a redemption that ensured the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered. This is the conquest of the cross. This is the glorification of the Son in His crucifixion. But the crowd remains confused. And they remain confused for a point of clarity. Verse 34. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They understand clearly that the Christ remains forever. They understand clearly Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. They understand clearly that He's saying He's going to die on a cross. Christ remains forever. His rule is forever. Psalm 89, 35-37. Isaiah 9, 7. Ezekiel 37, 25. His priesthood is forever. Psalm 110 and verse 4. His name endures forever. Psalm 72, verse 17. Is this not the Son of Man that David spoke of, that Daniel spoke of? 
Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed." They're in confusion, they're in darkness, they don't see that the same scriptures that testify to the forever rule of Christ also speak of his temporal suffering. And that that temporal suffering is actually the avenue. Not just even the avenue, but it is his glorification coming into his eternal rule and reign. Paul tells the Corinthians the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And he goes on to say, it is a stumbling block to the Jews. They cannot see the triumph for the trouble. And thus they cannot see the triumph in the trouble. They cannot see the conquest for the cross. And thus they cannot see the conquest in the cross. And so rather than answer their question directly, Jesus simply calls for them to believe. Instead of stumbling at His death, they should walk in His light. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. What does walking mean? Walk lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. What does it mean to walk in the light? While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. They shouldn't stumble over His death. They should believe in His person. And then having said this, he departs and hides himself from them. Once again, John is saying something much more profound than simply recording the events as they occurred. This, with John 12, draws Jesus' public ministry to a close in John's narrative. And the same way that, that we saw the conversation end with the Pharisees earlier, now it ends with the crowds as they stumble at His cross. And the next section will make clear that this is an act of judgment. That in a, in a more strong sense, Jesus has hid himself and withdrawn and departed from them. Sinner, do not so stumble at the crucified Christ. He is the all-glorious Lord of redemption, not despite the cross... And not simply because of the cross. He is the all-glorious Lord of redemption in the cross. See His glory there. See the triumph in His trouble. See the conquest of the cross. See His exaltation in His humiliation. Walk in the light. Turn from your darkness. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. And you will become sons of light delivered from darkness. And that transfer happens because of this conquest at the cross. Listen to Colossians 1. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you come, you come by the cross through which He gathers all God's children. He who is the resurrection and life, who lives and rules over all, Come to Him knowing He's mighty to save and He's mighty to save because of the cross.
Let's pray. Holy Father, with hearts lifted up to the lifted up Christ who was crucified and rose and now sits at your right hand with eyes to see not simply the glory that follows the cross but the glory of the cross. May we worship you, may we tell of you and speak of you with boldness and confidence that the very cross we proclaim gathers your people. And Father, we cry out for any among us here now that they would hear the message of the cross with power, be drawn to the glory of Christ crucified, believe, and become sons of light. Daughters of light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.